6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Church Epistles. Another thing about 1 Corinthians is it defines the gospel. You know, that's a term we use a lot, the gospel. You've heard that term many, many times. I ask you, what is the gospel? Well, that's the good news. That's evading the question. What is the gospel? It's astonishing to discover what the gospel really is. 1 Corinthians 15, the first four verses, Paul defines it. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. That's the first three verses. We'll get to the fourth. What's disturbing about that, can you believe in vain? Ooh, that's a sobering thought for many. I believe, I believe. James is going to tell you devils also believe and tremble. Belief is not enough in itself. But let's go on. What is he talking about the gospel? He then defines it here. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Three parts. One, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. It doesn't say He didn't disappear. He didn't just die. He died fulfilling hundreds of specifications. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Every detail about Jesus Christ was laid down in advance hundreds of years before. That's one of the three parts. Second part, and he was buried. It's strange that Paul would em emphasize that. He's the only one that does. And I, th I suspect it's because he builds a case on that regarding uh, baptism as an idiom of, of being buried and rose again. And then, of course, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And one of the exercises I typically give one of my students is, okay, where in the, scri the Scriptures there means the Old Testament, find the places in the Old Testament where it predicts that he would be raised on the third day. Well, Jonah. Yeah, okay. Jesus pointed that, that. He gave you one of them. There's about three or four others. So that's your challenge is to dig those out. But the point is, what's astonishing to me about the gospel here is what Paul does not include. Paul makes no mention of his teachings. A lot of people in the world will grant that Christ was a wonderful teacher. Been a lot of wonderful teachers. Maybe none like him, but still, he's a wonderful teacher. Paul makes no mention of his example. He will in the book of Philippians, but that's not the gospel. He makes no mention of his miracles. None of these things are the gospel. And it's astonishing to discover how many churches have pulpits 
which will talk about everything about Jesus Christ except these three points. That he died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he rose again the third day. That's the gospel. It's the old-fashioned, covered by the blood bit. That's the gospel. But then, of course, we get to the resurrection. And uh, Paul would, if Paul was standing here, I think he'd point to this as the most important chapter in the entire Bible. And, and, and the reason it is, is because if, we don't, if, if Christ was not resurrected, we have nothing. That was the validation of everything that went on. From the book of Leviticus and all the offerings that were anticipatory of Christ, his, his, his death on the cross, all of that was validated, uh, marked acceptable, so to speak, by the reality that he rose from the dead. And because he did, we do. So that's Paul's whole point there. Now this whole area of resurrection is an interesting controversy. A lot of people have trouble with the resurrection. Uh, uh, what happens when a cannibal eats another cannibal? And then some other cannibal eats that cannibal. And where's the body? How, how are you going to resurrect him? See, everybody gets sort of hard. It's hard for us to visualize what we mean by resurrection. And I, I think for us in our, in our culture, we, should, we have an we have indebtedness to Michael Crichton for his piece of entertainment called Jurassic Park. Just a piece of entertainment, a piece of science fiction entertainment, based on the premise that these creatures, prehistoric creature dinosaurs, were resurrected, if I can use that term, from a piece of information. As you may recall, the, the, his novel Jurassic Park that was made into a popular movie, the idea was that a mosquito that had taken a, some blood from a dinosaur that was captured in amber, which is then preserved, by because you can find amber and you can find mosquitoes in them. That's, uh, the idea is to take that blood, which will give you the DNA of the dinosaur, and from that DNA you can clone or re resurrect. That's, that's the concept. And obviously there's some bridges here that are pretty tough to cross, but the basic technology is comfortable to, uh, to, uh, to in a prognosis sense. So that gives, of course, the plot line to the Jurassic Park thing. But the point is it makes an interesting point. The atoms that make up your body, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, and a bunch of others, are fungible building blocks. God doesn't have to have the carbon atoms that made up you today to resurrect you 10 years from now, or whatever. Or the hydrogen. Those are the building blocks. What he needs, it would seem, is your DNA. With your DNA, apparently that's, that's the definition of you. And so the, it helps us at least visualize that resurrection, it's not the old bodies that we're interested in anyway. And I'm not suggesting that our resurrection bodies are going to be made of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen atoms. But if they were, they don't have to be the same ones. They can be whichever ones he wants to use. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? So the whole idea of resurrection is a little, are a little more easily visual, visualizable. Basic building blocks are fungible elements. And uh, the only requirement is the DNA and maybe a little bit more. Now what kind of a body is involved in the resurrection? Jesus is our, is our source, of course. His resurrection body is the model, if you will. First of all, understand that it was tangible. It wasn't like a ghost or a, a holographic image or something. He challenged them that night when he appeared among them. Handle me and see. The spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. Remember? He's tangible. You can handle them and feel them. 
Now, it's, what's strange about this is they're in a room with a floor and a ceiling and four walls, I assume. Let's visualize it as a six-sided geometric figure, and they're inside. He was able to enter and leave that without passing through the walls or the, or the floor and the ceiling. And mathematically, he's in a hyperspace, obviously. But the point that he's hyperdimensional, that is spatially transcendent, is something that we, if, if, uh, there's only two kinds of people that can deal with that, of course, as we mentioned in the very first, one of the early sessions of this review, and that's uh, mathematicians with special training or small children. But there is a statement of physics in 1 John 3, 2, that I think is far more revealing than most people recognize without any background. In his first letter, John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it hath not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now what's he saying here? I believe what he's saying is we're going to enjoy the same dimensionality he does. We're not going to see a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional being. We call that a photograph. A photograph is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional person or party or whatever, right? It won't be a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional being or a five-dimensional representation of a ten-dimensional being. What, it mean, what he's saying is we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. See, that implies to me that when he was among them in the upper room, they saw him, they handled him, but I suspect there was far more there than they could apprehend. That won't be our case when we're resurrected, because we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So those peculiar uh, properties of his resurrection body are ones that we'll enjoy too. Strange stuff, but it's, it's, uh, it's amazing how often in the Scripture there are uh, physics statements in effect. But getting back to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul goes on, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. Now, the word mystery in the Greek is not like we use the term. Mystery is something un not understood. The word mysterion in the Greek, from which that's translated, is actually something that's been a secret up till now I'm revealing it to you. The concept isn't so much hiding as much as now revealing in the, in the term. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this incorruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Quite a statement. A couple of things about this. is in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. It doesn't say in a blink of an eye. That's a long time. The twinkling of the eye is the time it takes light at the speed of light to transit your lens surface. And if you go through the arithmetic of that, it's pretty close to 10 to the minus 35 seconds, which is the shortest measure of time possible. There's a measurement of time. That's what quantum physics is about. Length, mass, energy, time, all are made up of indivisible units. And the smallest unit of time, I suspect, is what he's talking about here. Not a, a Anyway, uh, at, at the last trump. Now, a lot of people try to make this trumpet, the last trump, 
uh, the seventh of the Revelation. That's misunderstanding Revelation. We'll deal with that when we get there. But in any case, there will be a final trumpet as far as we're concerned, a maiden trumpet. When it sounds, and there's going to be more, we'll find out there's more about this that Paul will reveal to the Thessalonians when we get there. But this is, of course, this strange time when we shall, this instant. See, there, there will be a time, there will be a generation that won't die. Many of us in this room may pass away before that time comes, but some of us in this room may very well be alive at this instant when God gathers His church. And Paul will deal with that in depth in, the, in his Thessalonian letters. But there are seven transitions involved. We go from corruption to incorruptible, from dishonor, this flesh, to glory, from weakness to power, from the physical world to the spiritual world. Now this is where we usually get it upside down. We tend to think the physical world is the real world. The spiritual world is sort of this fuzzy, ghostly, uh, we, have, uh, we tend to look at it in secondary terms. It's the other way around. We know from particle physics that you and I live in a simulated world, a digital, virtual reality, not a real reality. We're bounded something in a finite universe on the one hand and, part of, and, and, uh, and a digital simulation on the, on the quantum side. So we we're in that strange interval. No, the physical world is a subset of a larger reality. The spiritual world is the embracing of the larger reality. That's where we're transferred to. We're going from earthly to heavenly from flesh and blood to the transcendent, and from mortal to immortal. Well, anyway, let's move on to 2 Corinthians. We've got a lot of, a lot of these to cover. Let's keep moving here. Um, so Titus, as I said, you know, brings a disturbing report because there are detractors that are attacking Paul's character. His opponents are hindering at cowardice and all this sort of thing. They insinuate doubts about his credentials and all this. So Paul's quite troubled by this. So Paul is forced to respond for the health of the gospel. Uh, there and throughout the region. So he uh, has an impassioned self-defense in Second Corinthians. A wounded spirit to erring and ungrateful children, as, as one person described it. A letter written with a quill dipped in tears, as one person described it from the apostle, uh, from his anguish of heart. It c contains more pathos than all his other letters. The earlier letter is written from Ephesus, uh, uh, to, to Corinth from Ephesus. He was compelled to flee because there were some fanatical reactions to the, from the silver merchants there and so forth, the Dana thing and all that. So in any case, uh, he, he uh, eventually gets to Corinth, stays there three months, but at the interval between leaving Ephesus and Corinth, he wrote this letter, probably from Philippi on his way over there, deeply affected the circumstances. So the second epistle of Corinthians... Christ is our comfort in, amid trial. He starts, of course, by uh, renouncing his critics, by uh, recounting his, his authority, his motive, and his message, and his background. And then he appeals to his converts about things spiritual and things material. He deals with both those issues. And he answers his critics and their pretensions. And he, he underscores his credentials. That's 2 Corinthians has a great deal of his background where Paul unabashedly lays it on the line. And as I mentioned, uh, you know, there was three visits when it first founded, then the previous letter that's alluded to, and then the one that resulted in 1 Corinthians, his response to Chloe's household. Then he has this painful visit where it was very tense, to which he writes a very severe letter that he's very apprehensive about. Titus is supposed to check it out. They finally do connect, and his report says they went well. And that caused him to write 2 Corinthians, this, this passion thing. But he's still dealing with some problems there. And then there's a final visit. So anyway, so much for the Corinthian letters. Move on to Galatians. Galatians, 
is really a polemic against the perversion of the gospel. And that shouldn't surprise us that we see people today perverting the gospel. It's not a new problem. It's been there from the beginning. And Paul deals with it head on. See, Romans deals with what it means to be grounded in doctrine. Corinthians, how to be guided in practice. Galatians, how to be guarded against error. There's three slightly different tacks here. Romans is grounded, Corinthians is guiding in practice, and Galatians is, in a sense, guarded with error. Some people would call Galatians sort of a short Romans in some respects. And Paul had visited there prior to writing them. His second visit was less reassuring than the first. So he really nails them against errors. He speaks there of another gospel. If anyone preach another gospel than the one I preach, let him be anathema, condemned to hell. He really hits that pretty hard. He emphasized the liberation through the gospel. He speaks of its authenticity. It's genuine to its origin. He argues it's genuine as to its nature. He talks about the superiority of the gospel of Christ, the new relation it affects, the privileges it releases, and the true liberty we have in Christ. This is perhaps its main underscore here. Uh, love service ends law bondage. The Galatians, just like the book of Romans, deal with our freedom from the law. We, we have a service of love rather than a bondage to the law. So there's a big tension between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh being bondage to the law and the spirit being freed from the law. And he em emphasized that very hard. There's a catalog of compromises. Faith versus works is one of them. Grace versus the law, it reflects that. Spirit versus the flesh. These are all echoes of the same kind of tension. Truth versus error. The church versus the state. We see that in this country. Christianity versus paganism. We live in a culture where our government schools inculcate paganism on our children. Christ versus the pseudo-Christ. So again, there's this, this whole profile. Uh, these are all echoes of somewhat the same tension, if you will. Flesh versus spirit. You know, Abraham was 430 years before the law. And the point that Paul makes in Galatians is the promises of God preceded the law. And the law cannot, the, the promises cannot be disannulled by the law because Abraham had the promises long before Moses, long before the law was given. And Paul even makes this distinction between Ishmael. He portrays Ishmael as the son of the flesh, Isaac, the fruit of the spirit. And he, he speaks of these two sons, idiomatically, if you will, as the flesh and the spirit. Ishmael of the flesh, that is unbelief. And he says, the son of the bond woman will not be heir. And his point is, not the person, his point is what he represents. Isaac is of the promise. He's a, he was a response to faith. It was Abraham's trusting God to resurrect Isaac that saved him. See, the ultimate triumph of faith was the offering of Isaac. And Paul hammers that home in, in Galatians 4. So what, let's, we've talked about the gifts of the Spirit in Corinthians. We are not called to be gift inspectors. We've been called to be fruit inspectors. So what are the fruits of the Spirit? Or I can call this little segment, How's Your Love Life? <laughs> I'm not using it in the Hollywood sense. See, fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, Meekness, self-control. These are the gifts of the Spirit. There's nine of them, right? It's interesting. The first three are fruits in the heart. Love, joy, peace. The next three are fruits that affect your neighbor. 
long-suffering, gentleness, and goodness. And the next three are those that relate, that manifest your relationship to God, faith, meekness, self-control. It's interesting that the, the second and third of each triad here is echoing the first. Joy is love exalting, and peace is love responding. Gentleness is long-suffering that's passive, and goodness is long-suffering that's active. See, these things are not just a, a list of words that sound good. There, there's some deep structure behind this. And uh, meekness is faith toward God, and self-control, faith in your life. So these are the nine gifts of the Spirit. And these are the ways that you can tell where you're at in terms of your spiritual growth. Not by the gifts you manifest, speaking in tongues or whatever. No, what are the fruits of the Spirit? And that's what's the critical thing. Now, he also talks about fruit-bearing. Those are the nine fruits of the Spirit. There's also, Paul emphasized, burden-bearing. Bear one another's burdens. And then he also talks about seed-bearing. Whatsoever a man sows, there, that's what he shall reap. And finally, he talks about brand-bearing, or mark-bearing, if you will. I bear the marks of the Lord Jesus, he goes on. Let's talk about brand-bearing, or mark-bearing, if you will. There are a handful of places that you had brands. Slaves had a brand. That was a mark of ownership. They were branded to say who owned them. Soldiers had a mark on them, mark of allegiance. What, were they, what was their allegiance to? Criminals had a mark on them, a mark of conviction. 26401 and Les Miserables, whatever, okay. The people that were abhorred had a mark of reproach on them. Devotees would have a mark of consecration. Paul's body had all five. Because he was a slave to Christ, he was a soldier for the gospel, he was a criminal in the sense he was convicted indeed, and uh, he was abhorred by some. He had the marks to prove it. And yet he had also a mark of consecration. So Paul, Paul actually had all five. But the summary of the whole book of Galatians, it can be in one verse. Paul asked him, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect in the flesh? See, the Galatians were saved, but they were all hung up with legalism, keeping the law. He says, Are you guys so foolish? What God has begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect or completed in the flesh? Hardly. And that's the, that's the undergirding, undergirding logic throughout the whole epistle. Okay, well, uh, we've, let's take a look at one of the capstones of the whole series, Ephesians. Its doctrinal statement is on ecclesiology. Most people have no idea what the church is. And Ephesians is the secret to this, in a sense. Our wealth in Christ, and Paul goes through our praise for spiritual possession, the prayer for spiritual perceptions, our new condition in Christ, our new relation in Christ, revealing the divine mystery and the divine fullness, and our walk in Christ. So we have our wealth in Christ, the first three chapters, and the, our walk in Christ in the last three. So we've got the first three are conceptual, the last three are practical, the church corporately, believers individually, and all the way through. Climaxing in the armor of God, we'll talk about when we get there. When did God first start dealing with you? And that's expressed in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Paul says, According as He hath chosen us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before Him in love. That's astonishing to realize God had you on His mind before the world was created. 
having predestinated us to the adoption of children by the Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. See, the word, the, the word chosen, by the way, in, in verse 4 there, is in the aorist tense in the Greek. That means once and for all. It's also in the middle voice. We have active voice and passive voice. The Greek has a middle voice. It adds a sense of choosing for one's own self. In other words, you are a participant in his choosing. And you're chosen out of the world once and for all for God's own peculiar pleasure. You were chosen to be holy, not because we were holy, but in order for us to be holy. That's why we were chosen. Now the word adoption here is misleading as we tend to use it in our culture. They had a different concept. You could be born of a father, but you didn't accede to your rights as a son until there was a formal public ceremony called adoption. The adoption meant the public attestation of adult sonship. And that's when you were conferred, had conferred upon you your privileges as a son. Up till the adoption, you were a son technically, but you were treated as a slave in the house. When you were adopted as a son, you then acceded to the rights of maturity, if you will. We are already sons of God, according to John 1 and uh, other passages. But he's predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Very powerful point. A sort of parallel, if you remember the uh, story of Ben-Hur, when Quintus Arius, a prominent Roman, adopts Judah Ben-Hur as his son. He then has all the privileges as if he was his actual son. But um, anyway, and verse 7, he says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. The word redemption simply means to be released by ransom. We've been ransomed. We've been paid for. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. A ransom paid in respect of the eternal principles of righteousness which govern the universe, the holy laws of God which humans have outraged. You say, gee, my sins don't seem that big. That's because you don't understand how pure God is. The problem isn't your sin alone. The problem is the gap between you and a holy God. That's what we can't grasp. And that's the holiness that has been outraged by our behavior. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact the station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 